Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, here with Andrew Paskin and a very special guest, uh, Nick Tedeschi, uh, founder of Making the Nut. Is that correct? Yeah, founder of Making the Nut. And uh, look, absolute pleasure to be here, boys. It's uh, uh, the best podcast out there. Absolutely loved your work on the Super League War. So what an absolute pleasure it is to be invited on. Oh, we're thrilled to have you. Um, your From the Couch column on Making the Nut is a appointment reading for me on a Sunday night, has been for some time. Uh, very strong opinions, very forthright opinions. Uh, and um, you're a big Canterbury Bulldogs man, so that's why we've got you here tonight. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Bulldogs absolutely through and through, and that's, uh, uh, that passion can sometimes turn a little... Uh... Little narky kind of Sunday night and uh, a weekend, <laughs> another weekend of disappointment, another weekend of frustration of, of how the club's going. But uh, at least, uh, at least today we get to look back on a much better era than than what we're uh, enduring now. Yeah, exactly. So anyone who's not on top of uh, from the couch on on making the nut, make sure you get to that. That's www.makingthenut.com. Yeah, um, Nick, welcome to the podcast. We're both massive fans, as Michael said. Uh, as long as I've known Mick, he's been pushing your column like seven years ago. Or something I met him. He was talking about making the nut and from the couch, and I got to get on it. So uh, Mick's a lifer for you. So uh, and he's got me under it as well. Oh, fantastic! And look, to, to be honest, the yeah, there's not much money to be made out of something like making the nut. But the the real joy has come from the kind of connections you make with this kind of rugby league underworld. <laughs> Underbook that, uh, that, that exists with, you know, you guys. I know you had Rami on, uh, uh, on the last podcast, which was, was tremendous. The great Albie Tallarico and, and a few others as well. So, uh, look, it's been an absolute uh, uh, pleasure to, to, to write. It's been uh, as much therapeutic as anything uh, <laughs> writing from the couch, uh, as most readers can probably tell. But, uh, uh, yeah, it's 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 been you know, kind of connecting up with with other rugby league diehards who who yeah, created their own interesting interesting forums and, and probably none better than you guys. Well, we the, the reason why we're getting you here tonight is because this was years before Andy and I started the Rugby League Digest. It was not long after I met him. I was like, you got to check out this guy. He writes this from the couch column. 20 years on from Super League, he's still calling uh, the Bulldogs for <laughs> the filthy four. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll be honest. I I had forgotten I had named it that until I just happened to happened upon the podcast. Uh, <laughs> on the episode. I was like, oh, I think I did do that. It was. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll be honest with you and the listeners. Uh, uh, it's really written in sobriety, so yeah. <laughs> things 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 uh, do get a little crazy. But uh, 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 look, I I, I yeah. Uh, anyone who's read the the Guardian this week and my views on Sonny Bill Williams returning. Uh, can hold a grudge. Can hold a grudge. <laughs> so a, a true rug, rugby league man. Uh, a good operator, as they say. <laughs> so th this is one of these uh, case studies that we'll, we'll be doing over our off-season as I'm busily preparing 
season two. The Bulldogs, in terms of Super League, there's probably no club that Super League uh, had more ramifications for, and and they were really in the thick of it in so many ways, culminating in the the premiership in '95, which I want to get to at the end of the episode. So what what I want to do tonight with you, Nick, is to, just to basically backtrack over some of the the stuff that we've talked about in terms of the Bulldogs and Super League. Before we get to that, I want to get to the heart of your rugby league story, your Bulldogs fandom. So where does it all start with you? Uh, I'm a country kid, uh, actually recording this from the town of Grupper in a place called Orange in, in central west New South Wales. Loving the game from a very young age. I, I, strangely enough, I can recall, I don't know whether this is this is re, reconstructed memory or, or, or legit memory, but... Uh, of a Saturday afternoon game, I'm thinking about 86 or 87, and my old man goes, who are you going for, the blue team or the red team? It was North against Canterbury. I, cho- I chose blue, and the rest is history. Very wise. My rugby league fandom may have been very, very different had I chosen red that. <laughs> but it was a, a couple of seminal moments. My my best mate growing up was a, from a huge rugby league fan. We had a couple of uncles who played a little bit of first grade footy. They were absolute die-hard league guys. I, uh, we, had a, we were staying at a hotel and I ran into Cliff Lyons and asked for his autograph and he said, would you like the rest of the boys? And took me around every every one of their, their room and got their, got the got an autograph from, from, the, from the rest of the Manly team in a pre-season game and they hooked ever since. Uh, group 10 there in Orange, isn't it? Group 10, Orange Sims is, is my team out here. Uh, unfortunately been called off this year because of COVID, but uh, yeah, it's been a, a, been a very successful team and it's produced some good players over the years. I was living in Cobar back in uh, 2006, which uh, was the year that the, the mighty Cobar Roosters won the comp, taking on a, a previously undefeated Wellington team in the grand final. So got, got a lot of lot of good memories of, of bush footy. Uh, there's not much like it going out there and, and you know having a pie or a hot dog and, and a couple of tinnies on the hill rugged up. Bush footy, there's something special about it. And, and I think... You know, on a probably a more professional level, what what Newtown have done at Henson Park and the team out there has really replicated to a probably higher level. What what you get that atmosphere you get at Bush Footy, you get real food, you know, you get yeah you know, yeah you know, real people and some some real bloody big hits. Yeah, you know, it wasn't to, it was only recently Bubba Kennedy retired from playing out at Group Ten Footy. So wow, and he was around in the the heyday of the Super League Wars. So and of course his boys playing for for Cronulla now, but uh, uh, you get some pretty good stories out here. I'm not sure if you're aware, Nick, um, that uh, Nick Kosef was from Cobar. <laughs> <laughs> Has been mentioned in dispatch. <laughs> Andy, you're from Toronto. You talk about the Scorpions often. Do, do you have the same memories of heading to the ground there? The best thing about the my memories of that ground is when it was a night game and they'd have the, the car lights on the, the people would drive into the hill and then shine the lights on the field. That was the coolest. How good are those stories of bush footy? I know the the stories of the Mar Cup back in the day, mm. and, and, and you know there was the same thing. You know, there was obviously no no no, no floodlights back then, so they drive the cars up to the ground, yeah, across the across the fields and and, and showing them on so they could finish the game. Like that, that's tremendous stuff. And you know, I hope this goes on for, for time immemorial. Well, let's get to Super League itself. So, 1995, the story breaks. Can you remember? Well, I guess 94 was when it, it first came out. Can you remember your first um, memories of, of when it started all kicking off? I remember the front page of the Telegraph on, on April 1 uh, and and just being blown away. I, I, I'm pretty sure it was a Saturday and I think I was on my way to uh, yeah, 
probably junior soccer or something like that at the time, and was just completely blown away. I must have been 12 at the time. And just seeing Terry Lamb among you know, the group of, wow, there's got to be a different league. What's this mean for footy? And completely innocently, completely naively at the time, even though I think I probably, less in hindsight for myself, stumbled on the right place, was just like, this sounds fantastic. This is going to be so cool. I remember uh, a big footy card collector at the time and just like, oh, all right, let's get all the Norths and Manly cards together and see what the Northern Eagles would look like. Oh, what if there was a, you know, Wests and Canterbury and Parramatta? Oh, how cool would that be? Not really kind of thinking of it actually happening. But then, obviously, it, uh, things got a lot uglier and, and clubs and people became a lot more selfish and very, very glad that uh, uh, Canterbury didn't end up merging with West or Parramatta or Penrith. That's, that's uh, the first person I've spoken to that had that outward look that early on. You know, like I, I think a lot of people are very protective of their clubs and, and the ramifications of a Super League. But you were excited from the get-go. Yeah, I was excited. I, I was also brought up uh my family not so much but kind of the, the kind of people like the fathers of the kids i associated with who were, who were league diehards were very very cynical about the job that you know arco and quail have been have been doing out it was a very pro manly league grew up on stories of you know manly in the late 70s and and hollywood hartley and all that kind of stuff so you know the influence bozo had on the on the game so i was very excited for it but to be fair, yeah, I'm probably getting a bit too much credit there. To be fair, had Canterbury been along with the ARL from the get-go, I may have had a very different view on that as well. So I was I was definitely more Canterbury uh, uh, than I was probably rugby league at the time. So being uh, wrong, I watched, watched as much as we could. Yeah, yeah, those fabulous hour-long packages on a Sunday night to capture you know, <laughs> two hours of footy and all that absolute rot. But uh, uh, I remember being excited by the concept of pay TV. I've always loved America. Uh I'm a big wrestling fan, so yeah, the idea of yeah, all these channels and all these sports being shown, and the fact that this could happen with rugby league, we get to see every game. That was that was such a foreign concept in 1994, and you know, it was something that definitely excited me. Well, Nick, I think our childhoods were very similar. Like, I got to ask you um, who your all-time favorite wrestlers are from the 80s and 90s. Uh, I was a, a, a big nature boy, Rick Flair man. I, I probably sided with the NWA more than the WWF. I was. A big Ric Flair fan. Uh, and then the WS side, Ultimate Warrior. Absolutely love the Ultimate Warrior. In, in hindsight, probably not a good, good selection. <laughs> considering yeah. his politics. But, uh, uh, and also also really loved uh, uh, Brett the Hitman. Well, uh, I was a big fan of those too. But I saw some independent wrestling in Newcastle in 93 and uh, had Jim the Anvil Nightheart. Uh, Junkyard Dog and Jake the Snake, and I touched Jake the Snake's shoulder. Oh, yeah, really. um, and I didn't realise he was probably on crack at the time, but <laughs> as a kid I was loving it. I, I remember meeting the Bushwhackers at, uh, at uh, some show in Australia's Wonderland, the, the long-forgotten Australia's Wonderland, and uh, I could not believe how excited I was. The Bushwhackers, unbelievable. <laughs> Isn't it funny how like Australia's Wonderland was situated in in, in the uh, least wondrous part of Sydney? <laughs> <laughs> you, you didn't realise that at the time, and I, I, rec- I recall going there after meeting the uh, the bushwhackers, Mike, and the excitement of going meeting the bushwhackers and then staying must have been at the the the, the Paramount of Best Western or somewhere out west there, <laughs> and, and watching, the, watching, the, watching the greyhounds on Sky Channel at night and ordering pizzas in the room. <laughs> wow. I, 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 I could not have lived a more, a, a more privileged junior lifestyle. <laughs> 
<laughs> Love it. Well, Nick, you've, you've made Andy's day because he's finally got someone to talk about wrestling with because I've got no idea. But let, let's move back to the topic at hand, Rugby League. Before we get to Super League, let's look at Canterbury as a club. In our uh, Bullfrog chapter, I, I did a real deep dive in the history of the club from when he took over in 69 onwards. And my God, what a story that organization mm. has. Absolutely. Yeah, even, even dating all the way back to, to the 1930s, the first year of just getting absolutely hammered. Yeah, to re- record the still standard, they of winning a premiership three years later, uh, another premiership four years after that, which is yeah, two premierships in your first seven years was, was, was quite remarkable, to to a long, long drought. Like this club was on its knees up through the 50s and into the 60s to knocking off the great St. George team in 67. Uh, uh, ending that run, and then Bullfrog coming on, and uh, you would struggle. Yeah, I know people will talk about Frank Facer. They'll talk about uh, uh, some of the yeah, Kevin Humphreys and, and the like. You'd struggle to find a more influential uh, member of Clubland than you will uh, Peter Moore. Yeah, agreed. Because I mean, Facer has a strong argument, but he did it with four immortals in his team. Uh, what Bullfrog was able to build, uh, it's it's unbelievable. Uh, it really was, a, and and the unique kind of outlook he took. He, people talk about Moneyball these days and, and constantly misuse the term, and and, and this is, is not a fair reflection of what Moneyball is as well, but he's, his different way of thinking of recruiting, of really attacking the country areas, of really tapping into Queensland, of really building family bonds. You know, like I, I was having a, a, a drink with Peter Mortimer on, uh, on, on Sunday, last Sunday, at his uh, winery out here in Orange, and he was telling the story about how how Canterbury came out to play a preseason game against uh, a, a team in, in, in the River Arena, and and the, the starting halfback was out, and they played a seventeen-year-old kid, redhead called Steve Mortimer. And Bullfrog was so impressed that he's gone, oh, we, he will never play against Canterbury again. And then got him and his brothers down there, and yeah, they're still the backbone of the club. Peter's on the board these days, so the, his legacy lives on. Of course, his son, of course, coach, plus uh, yeah, a couple of son-in-laws. His daughter is chairman of the club. It, it, it just lives on and, and will live on for, for a long time, yeah. The, the crazy thing about it is there's, you know, we, we talk about the family club and, you know, the cries of nepotism and all the rest of it, but so much success came out of this nepotism. Absolutely. Like, I, that was one of the things as a, as a kid. I, I really loved it. They really built this identity. Like, it was, it was nepotism, but it wasn't unique to Canterbury. He just did it well. <laughs> to, to be fair, like he, you know, don't get me wrong. You look at what Bob Fulton did with his boys at Manly. You know, not to the same level of installing him as coach. But I'm sure, yeah, had they been a bit more successful, he may have. You know, so it's uh, uh, he just did such a remarkable, remarkable job. And yeah, to this day, I find it incredible that yeah, he, he just reminds me of an old school Labor politician, rough and ready, and you wonder how they engender this kind of loyalty. And don't get me wrong, he used the, the stick as much as the carrot to, to, to kind of get that along. But people love Bullfrog. And he just created this winning culture that was lasted for such a long period of time. Like the success, not just in the 80s, through two pretty distinct phases, the you know, the entertainers to to, to, to the Warren Ryan era. But then to to, to kick again in the in the mid-90s, make a grand final, win another, uh, make one in 98. And even in through the early 2000s, that's very much the legacy of Peter Moore. To have five 
successive coaches win premierships. Like that's I haven't looked into it, but I'm I'm sure that's got to be the only time that that's happened. Oh, absolutely. They always say that that yeah, you don't want to be the guy who follows the guy. Well, it was the guy who followed the guy who followed the guy who followed the guy who kept winning premierships. Yeah, and it was pretty ruthless. Like you know, he 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 did go and recruit Phil Gould to to come in in in, in eighty eight, and once he had enough of Phil, like it's, yeah, it's pretty hard to take a coach yeah a year a year from a premiership. He did. He was he was ruthless with Warren Ryan. Uh, yeah, the only people he probably wasn't that ruthless with was his family. So, uh, well, yeah. As a as a diehard Chris Anderson man, I uh, uh, I'm very glad that was the case. Well, I mean, if you compare the the Parramatta, everyone looks at the '80s Parra versus Canterbury. Parra petered out in '87, and then Canterbury went through, like you said, the early 2000s. It's incredible longevity of success. Yeah, absolutely. My my memories of Parramatta growing up. '88 is probably the first season I, I probably truly remember. Well, Parramatta were were an absolute joke by that side. I remember them getting. Absolutely trounced in Canberra one day. Uh, it, it, you know, Sterling was always out, hurt. I know he can't I think he won the Rothmans in '89, but Kenny was in his. I know my my grandfather was a was a was a very passionate Parramatta man, but the days of Cronin and Price were long gone. They just didn't have that second wave that 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 Canterbury really did. I always have this theory about rugby league clubs, like how much of it is just luck of juniors, like you know, Canberra gets uh, Brad Clyde and Laurie Daly coming through, and you know. Mullins and what have you, and Canterbury had the Mortimer brothers poached from the country. You know, it's it just seems like you have to get very lucky with your with your juniors. I think so. That's probably particularly more so in the salary cap. The salary cap. I think I think it's a combination of probably either getting lucky or, or or kind of recruiting young well, but also having a good coach, a good head coach. Uh, yeah, if you put the Mortimers and uh, and whatnot under Tommy Rodonicus, for example, in the nineties. I don't think that's going to mean. I don't think that's going to mean too much. Yeah, I think I think Can- Canterbury were blessed. If Peter Moore had one great skill outside of the recruitment thing, it was his ability to identify a good coach, and he, he also had this the the confidence in himself that he would hire people he did not like. Like there's, there's not a there's not a person around who would say a bad word about Ted Glossop, but there aren't too many people around who would say a good word about Warren Ryan either. Or feel good for that matter, and he, he drew it in both for the for the good of the club. So, well, the, 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 there's two people here who'll say something good about Warren Ryan. <laughs> yeah, he he he, uh, uh, he also pinched about five Canterbury players in the early nineties as well when he went to West. So, uh, there, there was definitely a fair bit of dislike for for West from the Canterbury point of view in the early nineties, uh, particularly in that famous playoff in ninety one where Canterbury lost nineteen fourteen, but. And my memory, I'm sure, has is, is probably uh, exacerbated this. But Jonathan Davies was definitely through a hole when all the West fans come steaming on and uh, Bill Harrigan called full-time without Davies being tackled. So still filthy on that. Still filthy on, 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 on the wall. To be fair, I, I think you guys had, had enough success in, in that era. But I, I want to go back to Warren Ryan. He is, he, he is an endless source of fascination for, for Andrew and I. When when we were putting together our bullfrog chapter, I had to cut out like literally hours worth of content, like stories of of feuds. You know the the big feud with Mortimer, the feud with Bullfrog, a, a spying scandal in, involving Phil Gould. Like no one man in rugby league has generated so much joy uh, to me in, in my 
project of research in rugby league history. <laughs> and, and it hasn't stopped. He's, he's, he's belting other old blokes at the, <laughs> the top of the eastern suburbs to this day. So, yeah, the, I, I can, like, there is something about Warren Ryan that is, is just endlessly fascinating. And I think one story that sums up well is, is I, I can't think of too many coaches who would have played Greg Smith in 1999 for Newcastle. Just on the just on the the story that he played for the Philadelphia Eagles, like sure the internet wasn't you know, where it is today and all that kind of stuff, but yeah, the walk was just like it was it was a little bit of Jack Gibson about him without the without the personability, it kind of took bits of Jack bits of Brian Smith and the uh, but you, you you can't argue with it. I don't think there were yeah Newtown had more success under under Warren Ryan than anyone else. Canterbury absolutely up there with that. Uh, and, and the last kind of flailing days of West and Balmain, their last kind of successful years were both under Warren Ryan. Well, it's funny, Nick, because like um, we correspond with our listeners like regularly and we get a, probably a story a week from someone whose mum worked with him or someone who knew him and every single story is just berating some stranger he's just met. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, I think there's just something in there that uh, he's, his ability to hate is peak rugby league. Uh, and and you know that uh, someone like that doesn't survive in this game if they can't uh, if they can't hate to his level. And I, I don't know that too many people in rugby league could hate like Warren Ryan hate. <laughs> I, I just want to. I wish I could go back and be in a dressing room to watch him coach because you know he did have his defenders. He has defenders to this day, but the the general consensus is he was the biggest prick I've ever met. But I've never seen a better coach. And I don't know how you can strike that balance and have that dynamic when so much of coaching is about person ability and, and man management. But he seems to go the complete opposite way. He, his ability on the X's and O's must have been something else. It, it, it really must have been his insight into to how rugby league is played and should be played must have truly been something else. And, and obviously it was, was, was ahead of its time. But for him to engender to this day, like you say, People will say he's the, the one of the best coaches of, of all time. It is it's quite incredible. But is it like uh, in coaching rugby league in particular, is it not about authenticity? So if he goes, I'm a prick and I'm going to own it, so they go, well, he's a prick. So we have to listen to him because he's, he's being honest. I'll see if that works for Anthony Seabold. I think there is something there. I think there is something there, though. I think, yeah, you do see a lot of yeah, angry coaches and fire coaches. I think at its, at its core... What will what will engender more loyalty than anything else in rugby league is the, the, the genuine belief that this guy will make me better as a footballer, which in itself will yeah. yeah this guy will earn me more money. This guy will yeah all the, this guy will get me yeah state of origin jerseys, Australian jerseys. This guy will help me win a premiership. I think I don't think anywhere he went, people did not believe that. Another divisive figure, nowhere near walk level, but but Chris Anderson himself seems a. a, a a funny type of personality, but you're a massive defender, big fan of of Chris Anderson. Can you talk a bit on on your feelings about um, Chris Anderson? I absolutely love Chris Anderson, and and I, I, I like Chris Anderson when he came on. I like what he did with the Bulldogs. Uh, uh, yeah, we went through a couple of dark years, and the, the yeah eighty nine ninety kind of got us on the up and up. And to be fair, this was everyone looks back on the, the time they were twelve was the greatest time. In, in, in ex-sport and in rugby league, that was my sport. And, and Chris Anderson was the man and, and then taking us to that premiership. But his, 
his vindictiveness and pettiness to drop <laughs> Jared McCracken. The, the, year before, the year before, he did the same with Darren Smith. Darren Smith, yeah. reserve grade. Like, I love that. And it's like, this is a guy, you're either with us or against us. And if you're against us, you can bugger off to reserve grade. I want nothing to do with you. And but the, when he kicked Jared McCracken off the bus for whinging or carrying on or wanting to stop somewhere, you know, I absolutely love that. Uh, and yeah, he brought about success. He was a pretty unassuming kind of character. I was too young to remember his playing days, but a uh, uh, pretty dry, unassuming kind of guy. And he just was, he was, he was Canterbury growing up. For me, growing up, Terry Lamb and Chris Anderson were Canterbury. I stuck with defending him through the storm, which was easy. Sharks fans, not so fond. And the one marker at the Roosters really kind of drove it. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was tough to defend, but uh, I absolutely love Chris Anderson. I think he's a, uh, I, I would go as far as saying one of the most underrated coaches, you know, at least that I've seen in the last 30 years. He Not many, not many uh, coaches can get premierships of two different clubs. Uh, and, and he probably took Cronulla to as good as they've done in a long time as well. So uh, I, I think he's a, a, a was a very clever coach back in his days. But unfortunately, by the time he got to the Roosters, the game had passed him by. I was a huge fan at the Storm, but, but the uh, the flat attack was ahead of its time, and it was g- genius. But then, by the time we got to Cronulla, like the flat attack was so flat, it was almost forward, and it was and and the game had passed him by even at Cronulla. But I mean. It sort of happens in in style of play, doesn't it? So you can't really knock him for that. But he's easily the most successful coach that resembles Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> he he uh, uh, wasn't renowned for uh, uh, his excitable personality. But uh, you guys talked about Warren Ryan's authenticity. Yeah, Hopes was what Hopes was, and and he was a pretty big believer at Canterbury. It was his belief was get a pack that is monstrous and a couple of clever halves. That's what you need for success. And and built a team, and we'll get to 95, I'm sure, soon. But, yeah, at its core, the 95 team was built around a massive pack and uh, Terry Lamb and Jim Dimmick being able to kind of create create points. How do you feel? Obviously, Canterbury aren't in a particularly good position. Um, how do you feel about the job Chris and, and Lynn are, are you know, have done since the reform ticket? I had a lot of hope when they came on board. I think that, yeah, it's probably been disappointing so far. Uh, but I, I, I am happy to kind of let them keep on keeping on if they can kind of start moving some stuff in the right direction. I, I don't think it's... I think they've, they've, they've found themselves with a pretty divided pretty divided board and a pretty divided club. And I think that they were completely hamstrung by what Raylene and Des left them. So... Uh, I, I didn't like the hiring of Dean Pay at the start for, for many reasons. One, he couldn't coach, and two, he was part of the Filthy Four. <laughs> to, to, to my dying day, I find it completely unforgivable that two of the <laughs> two of the Filthy Four have gone on to coach Canterbury. So, uh, yeah. a very disappointment. Uh, I think they could do a better job. I think they need to, to to probably surround themselves with fewer ex players and try to get a few more astute operators because. The, the, the footy that, that they grew up and, and, and knew and, and, and succeeded at is, is long gone. They were like handed a, a terrible situation, but it seems that any decision that's been made in the last couple of years is a complete head-scratcher, so I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I I think the recruitment's been a shambles, to be honest. I, I, 
I understand that we are uh, are fairly limited in what what we can do and who we can afford. But then you go and spend money on, you know, someone like a Christian Crichton, a Joe Stimson. Like, we have a thousand boring slow back rollers. We don't need a thousand and one. And then all of a sudden, here comes Dean Britt. Yeah, got the famous last name. Give him another deal. So I'm hopeful that with a bit of clear space that I never know. Like I'm made my feelings pretty clear. I don't think the Trent Barrett experiment is going to be a success. I would like to at least think that. Uh, with his standing in the game as a player and a supposed uh, attacking guru, that he will be able to attract some modicum of talent that has been missing. Because on a pure talent-for-talent basis, this Canterbury side would have to rank in the top 10 least talented sides of of the NRL era. Absolutely. I mean, like, if Trent Barrett can't improve uh, with a full cap from what they are now, the guy, like, cannot coach. So, I mean, it has to go up from here. There's, there's, there's not, there's not too far down from here. There's not too far down. Like it's been, I, 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 it was disappointing for me as a kid if we missed the finals one year and to be in the state we're in now. Like it just seems forever ago since we played finals, and it seems like forever still we will play finals. And I understand that, yeah, the the business of footy's changed. And the the probably lowers are low and takes a, a, a bit longer to get back to the the top of the tree, but. Gosh, it's been a long time. I think, yeah, since the Dogs last won a premiership, the Cowboys, the West Tigers, Cronulla have all won premierships. So it's pretty sick. And what the club has lost in that time is you could have your lean years here and there, but Canterbury had the reputation as a great club. Whatever was going on on the field, you had the endorsement of the top coaches in the game. I remember uh, an interview with Mick Ennis, and he was talking about uh, leaving the Broncos, not knowing where he was going to go. Wayne Bennett actually wanted to get him to come to the Dragons, but he didn't really want to go back to the Dragons. And Wayne Bennett suggested the Bulldogs and said, they're a good club. Phil Gould, same thing, you know, saying to Brad Fittler that the Bulldogs are one of the few clubs a player of your stature should consider going to. So it seems, call it, you know, Bulldogs DNA, Bullfrogs legacy, whatever it is, for the longest time, they had this reputation and it seems to have gone so dramatically south so quickly. Yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd say that probably even lasted to, to being able to draw Des Hasler to kind of refresh off winning a premiership. I think, mm. you know, like, like drawing a good coach was not really a problem. I know he has folks for, for, for a long time and then tried Kevin Moore. I think I had to see folks left and, and the Bulldogs had a chase to Wayne Bennett or someone of, of that ilk. That would have been a chance of, of, of being able to pull that off. These days, that's laughable. I, I, I don't think Wayne Bennett would suggest Canterbury in the top five clubs in Sydney that you would, you would want to send your kid to, you would want to send a town to play to. But the way, the way they've misused players, Michael Ennis is, is a great example. We ditch him. He goes and wins a premiership with Cronulla for Michael Leisha in pretty much a swap. Alicia must have the slowest pass of all time around. Canterbury desperately crying out for season players. Lose Ennis, then lose Reynolds, James Graham, who didn't was yeah, wouldn't have been asking for much cash. Players like David Clemmer, you understand, but yeah, we I grew up on the likes of you know, uh, Steve Reardon, Robert Ralph, Tony Grimaldi, you know, Brad Moran, these hardened season veterans who were never the most talented types, but have worked their backsides off and really set the example for the club. Set the example of, of, of what you need to do to be successful, and that's just gone. That is, that is, that is so long, that is so far out of Canterbury's DNA, 
Yeah, that, that's what Melbourne's DNA is now. That's not what Canterbury's DNA is. But so much of it is is in the salary cap era is a one bad signing can hamstring you. Like the Michael Leisha situation, diabolical, and uh, Damien Cook. Start me on the Damien. Kieran Foran on a million dollars, you know, perpetually injured. I mean, he isn't half the player he was, that type of thing. It's like it happened with Brisbane with Jack Bird. Uh, if you tie up a million dollars in a player that's, that's ineffective, I think you're basically gone. Uh, absolutely. It, if it, to be honest, if you tie up a million dollars with anyone that's not named Cameron Smith, it looks like you're gone based on that, that top 100 list. If you go through that that top 100 list of, of highest paid players in the game that the, the Telegraph published not that long ago, in the top 10, there will be maybe one or two of the actual top 10 players in the, in the game being paid that much. Yeah, yeah you've got Ben Hunt and Kieran Foran and and the like, and, and you're right, they're just hamstring clubs. And yeah, on one level, that's that's why that's why the NRL is great. Like, you know, for most reasons, clubs can can win quickly, but without a draft, it's very hard. It's very hard to bounce back from being very bad if you've got someone on a long term deal that you cannot get rid of. The Broncos with Milford and Bird, that's literally half your cap just sitting in reserve grade, basically. Oh, they'd, they'd be better off if they were sitting in reserve grade the way they've played over the last couple of years. That, that's the one thing I hope the Bulldogs get at the end of this season is not the spoon because watching the Broncos the last few weeks, I've just been, how is this team not coming last? So I'm hoping that corrects itself sooner rather than later. Well, if Dean Pay was still the coach, we would have uh, thrived because he said, all his wins seemed to come in the final third of the season when the, when the, when the year was long gone. So yeah. uh, that would have been handy. Uh, look, so do I. I. I think Canterbury for the most part have really dug in. They're just so bereft of talent that they are, are incapable of, of, of matching a lot of these teams. But, yeah, I could count on a couple of fingers the, the times they've thrown the talent issue. So I, I don't think they deserve the, the last place spot. Uh, I think the Brisbane Broncos definitely do it for the enjoyment that Anthony Seabold uh, has given the public this year. It would be a, a, a fitting honour. Can, can I just ask, Nick, um... Is there a culture issue at the dogs at the moment? Like you see all the, the Adam Elliott incidents and the you know, th- th- there's a few whispers coming out of Canterbury here and there where it never used to be. Um, is it has it become a party club? You think? Uh, I'm not sure it's a party club. I think it's maybe more a club stuck in the past. You know, kind of that that old uncle that tells bawdy stories at you know, inappropriate times and says inappropriate things at the Christmas table. Like it's, I think there's a, a lack of modernity in the club. I think. They don't really know what they want to be. I think they're str- they're they're actually lacking a strong leader, from either a coach or a player, to actually define what the club is. So I think that right. there's just a lot of because yeah, what Adam Elliott did wasn't a great look, wasn't the end of the world, but it's not it's not what Canterbury should be, and it's not what yeah you know, we should be doing. And combined with a lot of the stuff that went on, you know, Port Macquarie and a lot of the other stuff, like yeah, I remember speaking with 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 Lynn Anson a few years ago and. Her view is that the club should be very wary of of signing bad. That feels the wrong term, but uh, uh, signing people with potential issues people and the like. Well, then we go and sign Corey Harawira Nara, who was very much caught up in some of the the, the Penrith stuff that went on out there. Is now being released from, from the Bulldogs. If you want to create a good culture, you don't go signing players like that. Especially when you've got salary cap troubles, like just you just don't go signing players like that. Full stop. I'm actually happy that Canberra got him because usually Canberra loses a player to a scandal, but we're actually picking up a, 
um, a good player, but uh, what was the issue there? Like he was angry at how Canterbury treated him after the after the schoolgirl thing. Is that is that what happened? Yeah, that's what's happened, and I, I'm not entirely sure everything's come out on that story either. But uh, I think it's a little uh, high and mighty to be uh, suggest, <laughs> suggest you've been hardly done by. That's what I mean. The audacity of it. Well, that's probably a good place to get back to the past because the the success of '95 was in many ways built on a culture of no layers uh, that was really developed in the 1980s. Uh, I want to finish on a positive, so we might save the general 95 talk to the end. Let's dig into the filthy four now. So can you put your rage, your anger, your bitterness into words, Nick? I go back to one story that that, that would, I don't know it would be that acceptable now, uh, but I just feel me with such pride at the time, and to this day still fills me with such pride. That uh, must have been midway through the 95 season. Maybe it was 96 uh, after they'd, they'd left. Our Canterbury fans stood on the hill and uh, burnt Jared McCracken's book. It must have been 90. It must have been 96. <laughs> it was 96, because, yeah. Because it was called a family betrayal. Uh, and they said it a lot, I think. Wow, I wish I was there that day because that was something <laughs> special. Uh, for some reason, McCracken has always stood out as the guy I've hated the most of the 54. He had a sense of entitlement and arrogance that I just could not cop. And you saw the likes of, of, of Dimmick and Dean Payne and to a point lesser extent, Jason Smith kind of get some redemption at the back end of the season. I, I just kind of always felt Jeremy McCracken was the ringleader there. He was a troublemaker from the get-go. I remember he was out of eight weeks for eye gouging uh, a couple of years prior. I think he was trouble from the get-go. And I, I, I think he would have taken the, the, the rest of them for, for a fair ride. And I, I know that the likes of, of Gould and, and, and Bozo and the like got their, got their claws stuck into to, to the filthy four. But <laughs> I, 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 I dare say Joe McCracken was the one who took them to the lair. So it's... Uh, there was so much disappointment with that because they were probably yeah, four of our probably six, seven best players. Terry Lamb was retiring. I went to his final game in the 95, final game of the regular season, 95, a farewell to the bar. They, they knocked off the Cowboys 6-4. One of the great memories of my childhood. They absolutely ran right on the, the Cowboys that day. Terry Lamb got a couple. And then Terry Lamb having to come out of retirement in 96 on a pretty fruitless campaign that was never much hope of succeeding. And have to have those memories of farewell game, lifting the trophy, sullied because of these four traders, unforgivable. And what what was annoying is that at the time people were they didn't realise what was going on with Terry Lamb coming back. They were calling it this in this lineage of ill advised comebacks, like he should have stayed retired, not realising that it wasn't his choice. He had the fairy tale ending, but he's just that much of a clubman that he knew that. He was needed. Yeah, he absolutely, and I've spoken to, to Terry about this, he absolutely did not want to come back for 96. He he, he was talked into it by Chris Anderson and Peter Moore. Uh, and you can't blame, like I said, he's, he's a great clubman to come back. This this wasn't a Muhammad Ali coming out of retirement, you know, one of those situations. This is Terry Lamb doing what was right for the club. And the club was cast because by the time the court cases were all settled, there wasn't a lot of there wasn't a lot of players in the market for the for the Bulldogs to be able to go and and and, and recruit. Uh, and it was a pretty ordinary season, 96, and not the, not the way Terry Lamb should have gone out. This is stepping on our, our 96, uh, our next season, but to, to me the thing that sums it all up is he has this fairy tale finish, 
goes out a winner, has to come back. His last game played before about 6,000 at Belmore, absolutely pissing down. The Dogs get the win, but, you know, it's a, a lost season. It wasn't, you know, the same as the year before. The club was going to honour him with a, a train going past, stopping with a sign that said, you know, congratulations, bar, whatever it was going to say. The train was running late, so by the time it arrived, they were already back in the dressing room. <laughs> <laughs> very rugby league. Oh, that is very rugby league. I absolutely love that. It's uh, uh, probably wouldn't happen these days with PBL, the, the man who makes the train. <laughs> but uh, back in '96, it was uh, yeah, a different time. Uh, I, I just I hated that he had to come back like that. Yeah, I just was such a Terry Lamb fan, and what he did for. Not only the club, but my love of rugby league and my, my favourite memories of, of, of watching footy as a kid was was, was Terry Lamb. And for him to have to come back and play with you know, a pretty ragtag bunch, there was you know, there were some good kids coming through, but they weren't ready yet to lose all that star power. And it was so deflating. And like I said, after he not only lifted the trophy, but yeah, we'll get to it, but one of the most famous finals runs of all time, yeah, that 66 4 win in the final round of the year, like it was. A fairy tale finish for Terry Lamb, and then yeah, say to go out on a miserable day at Belmore, not ideal. We might as well keep talking about Terry Lamb at this point because it's definitely something I wanted to touch on. I like I hated Canterbury; they they were my least favourite team in the comp at that point. It goes back to '88. I fell in love with Ellery Hanley, and uh, we all know how that ended. Going to high school, there was a big Dragons versus Dogs rivalry, so I hated the Dogs. I hated Terry Lamb. And uh, now I've come to really respect the dogs and Terry Lamb in particular. I, I kind of wish I could go back and, and watch him again with adult eyes. Yeah, it's funny that. Uh, I, I find it hard to separate as well because we all know how Hilary Hanley did headbutt Terry Lamb's uh, fist. <laughs> <laughs> in the 88 grand final. Uh, it, it, it is hard. Like, I find it very hard to probably appreciate him as, as an adult. Like, I, you know, every time I see a highlight, it's just this giddy, you know, 10, 12, 14-year-old who just love the Bulldogs through blue and white eyes. And, and I, you know, I've certainly had the same view of other players. I, I definitely didn't appreciate, say, uh, a Brad Clyde at the time as, as much as I would now. And, and, and almost certainly didn't appreciate those kind of workhorse forwards that were in and around the club at, at, at the time. But he was such a phenomenal, phenomenal player. And what I not particularly he just seemed to get everything out of his talent. Yeah, he he, he definitely did not. Yeah, it's almost like a Stephen Mark Wall situation with with him and say Brett Kenny. Brett Kenny looked amazing, and of course was an amazing player. Had that grace that yeah Mark Wall did. Terry Lamb just dug in. He backed up everywhere. He he, he kicked goals. He kicked field goals even when you didn't need him. Yeah, he would. He was everywhere doing everything. And, and yeah, try scoring machine for a half. Total rarity. It was leadership. He would just get the most out of the team. We'll just absolutely dig in. But always seemed so approachable. I remember meeting Terry Lamb as a kid and thinking, this guy is just one of the greatest humans of all time. And it was, uh, yeah, you, sometimes you meet your heroes when you're a kid and, and they disappoint you. I remember meeting Dean Jones once, who was my favourite cricketer, and was one of the rudest SOBs I've ever had the... Uh, at the time, I thought, oh, I'm just a kid. Go about an autograph. Wouldn't come out at a Sheffield Shield game for two days. But Terry Lamb put, put his arm around, just take a photo, you know, 
talk to you, all that kind of stuff. Wonderful, wonderful oh, player, yeah. wonderful person. Well, we were talking off air, Nick, about your your miniature schnauzer. Like that's how I always felt about Terry Lambie. Like he looks like one of those small dogs with the small legs, but but real fast and um, full of and full yeah. of heart, and just just kept on going. It's like yeah, a bit like the Energizer Bunny as well. Like he just just kept on keeping on, and even not all the people. I guess he's probably pretty well known by those actually. But he didn't train much by the end. Yeah, he was well and truly fond of a drink. He didn't mind a dart. Yeah, you have to go back to yeah how he encapsulated his career. Yeah, he debuted when Winfield came on, and he was finishing up in the final year of the Winfield Cup. Yeah, he, he based his he he bookended his career around cigarettes. <laughs> uh, 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 so he wasn't renowned for his you know, what you call uh, an elite athlete. Just got everything out of it. He got everything like he made everyone around him better. Like they would do that team in the the, the, the early nineties when he reached his stature and the greats of like your Steve Mortimer's and that had, had moved on, they would do anything for Terry Lamb. Like that, like you, Jason Smith, Dean Pay, Simon Gillies, Jason Hetherington, yeah, all of them. They would do absolutely anything for Terry Lamb, and he just made them all better players. And and that's the mark of a, of a great footballer. If you make people around you better. Um, like Mal, Laurie Daly, Terry Lamb, you know, there's a certain elite bunch. Absolutely, I I I think his his game translates to any era as well. He would dom- would have dominated in the era before the the yeah there was a, a five meter rule. I think he'd still go well now. I, I I see a lot of similarities with Cameron Smith in his game. Obviously not at that elite level and the number of touches, but that's just ability to not do anything wrong. I, I can't remember a Terry Lamb era. Like I'm sure there were there were plenty, but he, yeah, he he, he really made a, a a certain field goal or yeah, other than kicking a field goal when they were down by two. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I th- I think Peter Moore said the worst I ever saw him play was good. Yeah, and I believe that. I would believe that. Bullfrog obviously saw every game, but uh, uh, he just he just never put in a bad game. It was weak, and he could be playing with the superstars of you know. Say 85, 86, uh, uh, a really good run in 95, or the battlers in 96, or the struggles of 89, Terry Lamb was still great. Uh, Andy, I've got to step in and congratulate you on your restraint uh, after hearing Nick's Dean Jones story to not bring up Ricky Stewart not signing your footy cards for the millionth time. <laughs> I think that's been told enough. It's been, um, it's been to see you, Andy. I went to Bruce Stadium, my brother's a Raiders fan when I was a kid. He didn't sign mine either. So there's <laughs> nothing personal. Well, I mean, I've already let out the fact that Nick Kosef was from Cobar. So. <laughs> So turning to the rest of the team, you've already mentioned some of my favourites of that era. Uh, Jason Hetherington, like absolute standout. I think he's a criminally underrated player. Uh, who who were some of your favourites in that team? I was a, I was a big Craig Polamalu fan. Absolutely loved him. He kind of reminded me of of yeah Terry Lamb Light. Absolutely loved him, and he he kind of probably got his due a bit later on. But uh, I was a big Craig Polamalu fan. I absolutely loved Darrell Halligan. Everything about the uh, kicking from the sideline every which way, wonderful. Uh, and, and Simon Gillies was another favourite of mine. I, I just, yeah, I really loved. I mean, he he played the football of his life during that final series mm. in '95, and uh, and of course he was he was captain for much of that year, Simon Gillies. So uh, and took over took over for for Terry Lamb's retirement. I think maybe even captain him in '96. So he was just such a fierce player, and I loved everything about him. And, Probably the last one probably keen to mention Matt Ryan. Yeah, I absolutely loved him. The boy from Maury. He was there was 
there was less than no frills about him. <laughs> yeah. He had negative frills, but he uh, uh, was just such a tryer and so adaptable. You could put him at fullback if there was an injury, stuck him on a wing, and finally got his due during the, the, the Super League season when, when he got to play a, a bit of rep footy, but uh, uh, wonderful player, mate, right? I've I've been amazed watching him over the course of researching this season. Uh, like he he was brilliant. Anytime I saw him play, he he was one of the players that really stood out. And from having like little memory of him as a player, apart from the name, I'm like, wow, Matt Ryan is is really good. He he was he was outstanding, and he had a great fend on him. Plenty of speed. Had that that old man elusiveness. You know, could just move the hips in and get on the outside of something and get around him. And, Little offload, you kind of don't see a lot of centers like him these days. But uh, uh, yeah, there's, there's more than a bit of Matt Gidley about about the way he played footy, uh, Matt Ryan, and, and he, he's yeah, you're right, criminally underrated. But it was great to see him play play for the New South Wales team uh, in '97. Well, all those players you mentioned there, Nick, I think they all speak to your love of the Canterbury culture because all those guys were were, were killer club men. Yeah, absolutely. Just I. My favourites over the years go going from those guys, but yeah, Tony Grimaldi, Steve Ridden, yeah, all these just yeah, Andrew Ryan, Luke Patton, just pure club men who would just give their all. And I know it's just, there's something about yeah, we've talked about the filthy four, and, and, and probably I've carried that grudge on probably longer than anyone at Canterbury, including everyone at the club. Um, but it is it, something about loyalty that that is ingrained in Canterbury, I think. Uh, yeah, I've always loved and, and, and prided about being part of the, uh, the Bulldogs. Yeah, I, I know they weren't always local juniors that come through, but players that played for Canterbury, particularly in that era, come and played for a long time. They weren't, we weren't, and we weren't recruiting them maybe at their best. Yeah, we weren't kind of going out and buying players at their peak. We'd, we'd get Terry Lamb. Yeah, sure, he, yeah, he was, he was, he was flying at West, but he, there was still better yet to come. Yeah, we kind of go and pick up like a, yeah, a Mark Brokenshire from. But man, you could build a club around and all that kind of stuff. So Mark Sargent, mm. you know, was was there as well. So it's uh, uh yeah, I just really love that as part of the, the, the Bulldogs DNA. And, and sadly, it's this you'd struggle to find too many outside of probably Adam Elliott and Josh Jackson in that mold these days. Well, I, I was speaking to the boys on the Joust Newcastle podcast about Polamanta last week, and I, I suggested that there's a reincarnation in the modern game, Cody Nicarima. <laughs> yeah, oh, I, if Cody Nicarima played for a good side, you'd probably say something out of that. I think that's a, a very fair assessment. He just went a million miles an hour, uh, Paul Amana. He, 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 just, he I, I don't, I'm sure this is incorrect, but he seemed to have the smallest legs of anyone who's ever played rugby league. Well, those halves, I mean, like the, the, the center of gravity was at the earth's core for those two. <laughs> You're not wrong there. Uh, and I, I, I must have been early 2000s, there was. There was talk of a Craig Polamalu comeback. Uh, I remember the papers that off. My my excitement levels were through the roof. It was unfortunately uh, uh, aborted, but uh, uh, yeah, absolutely love Polly. He was he was brilliant. He just he gave it all. Don't think he played Origin, but he was definitely mentioned. He was yeah, he was always talked about. Yeah, of who is he eligible for? Is he a Queenslander? Is he a New South Welshman? And it was talk he might have played hooker for Queensland I think, at one stage, but I don't think he ever got the call. I think he was in a bad era for you know quality halfbacks, but in a different era he might have got the nod, like the, the uh, John Simon role or something like that. Absolutely, you know, uh, there's too much question. He's probably would probably would have been a better half and definitely better suited to Origin than John Simon. But uh, uh, yeah, he, he did come around in an era of 
great, great halfbacks. And then, you know, had he have not signed with with, with Super League, you know, before the kind of, you know, he could easily have played that Jeff Tooby role. Uh, mm. Probably not to the same level, but had there been any injuries. So let, let's get to the final series because me, me and Andy getting ready for our 95 recap, I, I was just enthralled at, at every game I watched during that series, not just the Dogs games, but that's got to be one. The grand final may be a little bit flat, but that final series, that, that's got to be up there with, with you know some of the best series of all time. Oh, absolutely. It was a tremendous series. And I, I, I can remember the, the 95 I, I I struggle to remember what I had for lunch today. I uh, can remember the 95 series. Yeah, it's it's just ingrained in my memory as, as just the absolute highlight of my life. Like it was, yeah, just, just random tidbits. Like I remember having a, a $2 bet with my mate's uh, mum. His dad uh, was an SP bookie and would not let me on at the 33s at the start of the final series. And uh, uh, she goes, I'll bet you she was a, she was a Saints fan. It went double or nothing throughout the whole final series. I'm like, how, how good is this 16 bucks? This is, this is unbelievable. And, and, and going over and, and, and gloating about it as as uh, as Pete Boss, my, my mate's old man, uh, slowly went away and closed the window and uh, I only found it years later. He had he laid the thirty threes over the gap, and it was a, a, a horrid result for the boss family. Uh, <laughs> the to win it, but uh, that like that, I just remember the rain at the football stadium in that St George game. Uh, the the uh, I think it was Robert Ralph may have laid one on Gordon Tallis in the scrum. Uh, he definitely laid it on someone. It's uh, Terry Lamb getting sent to the Simbin for the first time. Uh, that that final series. Uh, I think it was a Mundine knocked the ball on over the line. Uh, yes, one minute into the game. Yeah, one minute into the game. Yeah. Brought up some, some PTSD watching that game again. That was a tough one. <laughs> I think it was, was it John Timu who crashed over for, for, for the Dogs. Yeah. It was a pretty dubious try as well. Uh, may have been a shepherd in that, but uh, play on. <laughs> that was a try. It was a, a, a wonderful game. and. I definitely didn't know that they were going. That they were a team of destiny then, but gee, you felt something. You just really felt because the dogs were massive outsiders in every game they played that yeah. series. They were huge yeah. outsiders, like particularly against the Raiders in the uh, in the prelim, and even the Broncos. They were huge outsiders, and and, and just got the job done. Like I, I struggled to recall a more complete performance in a preliminary final than the the the, the number of the Bulldogs did on the Raiders. Winning 25-6, Simon Gillard's a couple of tries. I think Albert Fuller, I had a shocker for, for, for the Raiders. But it was, like, the Raiders had what, lost not many games all year. I think it was two, wasn't it? Two games all year and were yeah. monster favourites. Like, this is one of the great teams of all, of all time. They had all the big guns there. and But absolutely, Bill, I don't recall the Raiders being in the game. Simon Gillard's got a double that day. Uh, just a wonderful performance and one of my memories of, of, of the finals that year was just how how overcast it was in Sydney during those finals games. Mm. Like I, the, 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 I think there might have been some Sun and the Broncos game, but that St. George game and the Raiders game, definitely overcast, definitely wet. Uh, and funnily enough, it, it was in many ways on the back of, of three of the filthy four that, that you got the job done. Dean Payne in that St. George game was amazing, uh, going toe-to-toe with Gordon Tallis and then you know, setting up the, the winning try. Yeah. Jim Dimmick in the grand final. So it's it goes back to what we said at the start of the episode about 
Canterbury thriving in this dysfunctional situation. Like this is the, the ultimate example of that. Absolutely, they were yeah backs against the wall, dogs of war mentality. Uh, and look, no doubt that three of the filthy four uh, definitely played a role, but I don't know that any were as um, uh, as helpful in that final series as Eddie Ward was. Uh, he, he, he was he was helpful in that St George game. He was helpful. He was helpful all the way to Great Eddie Ward. So uh, he uh, he had a, a big run to it. But my my memory of that of that final series uh, around I don't recall Jason Smith. I remember Pay and Jimmy were huge. Jimmy was absolutely immense in that grand final. Uh, but just what Simon Gillis did, he just was running like a man possessed. It seemed every time he touched the ball, he was making a line break. I don't recall Simon Gillis making a line break in the ten subsequent years, in the ten years prior, or the ten years after. Like it was, uh, yeah, absolute rarity. Uh, and I think, I think Darren, memory Darren Britt was 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 very good that series too. It's funny in my memory, Darren Britt, Steve Reed, and Robert Ralph. Like these could all be the same person, you know? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're just big country guys who are you know, raw bone. Made of steel, tried their guts out. They're all the same player. I mean, how how um how valuable is raw boneness in rugby league? It's one of the most valuable traits you can have. <laughs> Absolutely, I I don't recall a bit like a bit like the good Melbourne Storm players now. All over the last kind of fifteen years, the good Bulldogs players that they just didn't seem to get injured. They just seemed to be tough and just come out every week. Yeah, I. Yeah, I don't recall Jason Hetherington getting hurt. I don't recall yeah, Darren Britt missing too much time. I know he had a few, a few niches, but these were just big, hulking blokes. And it goes back to what Chris Anson tried to build. They're the kind of players he tried to build around. He tried to lay a platform. That probably culminated in the 2000 Broncos side, who very much run that. Let's have a bunch of monsters with some talented talented backs. Uh, and, and, but Chris Anson was very much a proponent of that. And, yeah. Sometimes it works. Sometimes you've got Miss Newton. You take what you can get. <laughs> so going into the grand final, had you got the sense of Team of Destiny by that point? Absolutely. I was. I did not believe Canterbury could lose that grand final. I was absolutely... That A, a week has never gone slow. I, I remember getting absolutely abused by my mum because I'd put blue and white streamers on the car window, on the, on the, uh, on the side window of the car and it had got ripped off. Uh, and she was filthy at me. I was just like, it's the dogs, the dogs are in the ground final. I'm sorry, it had to be done. And, and, and she forgave me. Uh, but it was, uh, I, I truly believed after that Raiders win, no one could play better football than us. And, and I don't don't recall a lot from what Manly had done leading up to it, but I don't recall them being super impressive. And I definitely thought they may have been over the top. Uh, yeah, not losing to me. That was, I don't know if you remember. This was very much the uh, the kind of thinking at the time was you had to lose one to win one before you, mm. win one. you know, you had to you had to lose a few games. It was good for you to lose a game leading into the finals and all that kind of stuff, which I don't really believe that you don't hear much of these days. But that was definitely the kind of thinking at the time. Well, the dogs had lost the '94 grand final. We'd really batten down the hatches. We'd gone on this run. I thought there's no way we can lose this, and this is the weirdest thing to to, to believe. But when Terry Land got sent to the Simbin, I knew it was our day. Because that was dead set. They were going to score a try. He's given away one of the great professional fouls. Goes to the bin. The dog, Manly Tapper 2. The dogs give up nothing. I just think, this is this is us. 
This is us. I feel this is this is something I, I remember and it's not something I've just made up. As he was going off, like you could see him talking to the, the team and there was just this intent in his face and I, I think you're right. I think it may have been the slowest walk off his walk from memory. I've got a real, real, it's a real forerunner to the to the modern day player going for the sim. There was no, it wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't moving at any great pace, Terry Lamb, and just calmed him down. And I, I might be wrong on this as well, but I, I do recall him kind of lifting his hands up and putting him down, like calm down, calm down. So mm. uh, uh, that that may be a false memory there, but uh, I, I just thought that was that was such a pivotal pivotal moment. Uh, and then, like the Canterbury, the lead at half time. Yeah, you know, mainly, you know, I know I said now that they were the team of destiny. I, I truly believe that going into the game, at about thirty minutes, when it was just relentless, mainly relentless, mainly relentless, mainly, it it felt yeah, I wasn't as confident as I, maybe I was pre-game. So, uh, but then when they got that try uh, around the corner pass that looked flat, that still looked flat to me. But uh, uh, to go with the lead, amazing stuff. So where does that that Canterbury team rate for you among your you know life of supporting them? Uh, there's none better. Uh, like that that '95 team in the final series was my absolute favorite. I would have been 13, nearly 14 at the time. Like I was beyond just a you know a kid who'd kind of come in or out of watching footy. I was watching the Dogs every time they'd played. I was collecting rugby league week. Yeah, you know, had plenty of footy car, all that kind of stuff. I was just assaulted by the game and probably still had a little bit of innocence before the, the Super League award really you know, I, I kind of developed the hate but it probably wasn't the the game wasn't corporatized to the, to the point it is today you know where you, you never talked about you know, who the football manager was you never talked about you know, what the front office was doing or who you just read the paper one day and, oh the dogs are signed down Halligan how good is that yeah oh we've lost David Gillespie that's no good um, I just I absolutely love that team. Uh, yeah, I saw outside of the filthy four, there be, wouldn't be too many players in that team I wouldn't have fond memories of. Yeah, I just think back to players I've probably never thought much of before or since, like Rod Silver. I just absolutely loved Rod Silver that year. Great final series. Great finals. Great finals. Uh, uh, great in the grand final. Uh, it was just uh, a really special team. It was. Yeah, the, the last grand final team coached by, by Chris Anderson. He went to went to Melbourne in 98, uh, which was a tough pill to swallow. I probably never had the same attachment to Steve Folks. And after that, there were just, there were too many Hughes boys running around. There was, there was, we started kind of developing the kind of team that would become that 2002 Coffs Harbour team where it wasn't overly, uh, sorry, 2004, it wasn't overly likeable. Uh, side then, and, and then kind of a, a steady de- downhill run through the Sunny Bill Williams, that wooden spoon run. The only other team that would really probably compete with it is probably that 2009 Bulldogs. Uh, mm. I really loved, like, when we just got a new, was a, it was a new beginning. Mick Ennis, David Stagg, uh, Josh Morris, Brett Kamali. It was just something special. And Kevin Moore coming, taking over as coach, and I just absolutely loved that year. And, Lost that preliminary final to Parramatta. It was a bit of a pill to swallow, but I, I love that 95 side. They were great. I was I think I mentioned earlier, I was at the, the ground. It was my first trip to Belmore, up from the bush, to watch Terry Lamb's uh, last home game at Belmore, uh, which we all thought it was. Uh, and to see them win 66-4, met Terry Lamb that day. 
still got a signed t-shirt somewhere from, from, from the farewell that day and just watch them absolutely run rampant on the poor old poor old cows it was it was such a special special team and, and you know the, the last great swan, swan song of terry lamb and seeing him seeing him lift that trophy uh was was, was wonderful uh, yeah it's, it's hard not to be moved by that run whoever you go for so uh, that, that that's probably we, we've done the modern day we've done the filthy four that's probably a nice positive note to end on so um thanks so much for joining us nick yeah thank you man absolute pleasure it's been uh it's been as fun for me uh as anything i've done before so it's uh uh incredibly enjoyable yeah you guys know that i'm a huge fan of podcasts so take a walk down memory lane to uh, i think i told my wife uh I'm, I'm, I'm chatting with some guys on my favorite podcast uh, to talk about uh, the 95 Canterbury side. Uh, like, well, that sounds like it'll be fun for you. I'm just like, you know what? It sure is. So, uh, thanks, thanks very much for having me, guys. It's been, it's been, it's been a really fun hour. No worries. So, uh, yeah, making the nut from the couch, uh, a must read every week. Uh, what, what else have you got you got going on? Uh, I write for The Guardian these days. Uh Host uh, a, a rugby league gambling podcast, the Advantage Line. Do a bit of rugby league for the Little Birdie podcast. A few betting sites out there. Is there any gambling in rugby league? <laughs> this is just a little bit. And, uh, I'm trying to make a nice niche for myself. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do. I do like the uh, Terry Lamb after his justification. His justification after he kicked that field goal to lose 12-11. To Newcastle is go. Oh, I would have made someone happy at footy tab. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine someone saying that now? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, yeah. Thanks so much, Nick. This this was a lot of fun. Uh, and any dogs fan, I'm I'm sure you'll you'll get a lot out of this. So uh, thank you, and we will speak to you next week. Cheers, Nick. Cheers, Nick.